This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you'd please turn in your Bibles this evening, we'll be looking at a passage from the Gospel of Mark. We'll be looking at part of chapter 9, beginning at verse 14, continuing through verse 29. Mark 9, verses 14 through 29. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. And when he, that is Jesus, came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him greeted him. And he asked the scribes, why are you discussing with them? One of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son, who has a mute spirit. Wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered them and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought him to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? He said, From childhood. Often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you can believe... All things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. And the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. When he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this evening, I pray that by your spirit you would ready our hearts to receive it, for we often ourselves may find that our faith is weak, that it is inadequate, that it is in crisis. Perhaps with this man we have read of here, we recognize that 
Uh, we believe, but we need help with our unbelief that lingers. And so I pray that you would strengthen and encourage our faith through your word this evening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry about that. I actually feel better than I did this morning, but I am sounding a bit worse, I think. So, do you have enough faith? It's not an easy question. Probably not the kind of question that most of us are comfortable answering. We probably carry at all times at least some basic agreement with God's Word, with the law, with the gospel. But we face difficulties and sorrows and trials in our life, and our faith is challenged. We can enter a crisis of faith where we find that our, our faith is deficient, it is inadequate. Now, this crisis can take many forms. It can have many causes, many things in this life that can set it off. Perhaps we could hit roadblocks. We could have struggles in our work and our vocations. Maybe we lose a job or don't get a job that we need or some other sort of catastrophe comes that affects our work to where we're not sure if we're going to be able to provide for our material needs and those of our families. Speaking of families, that can be a source of the crisis. We can have problems in marriages. We can have problems with children where they rebel, they disobey, they become wayward. Our family and friends can suffer. They can get sick. They can even die. We might be staring at the possibility of our own illness and death. We can face all sorts of challenges of life that can shake our faith. Even in these moments, uh, though mentally we would assert that God is good and God is in control of God, things in our hearts, in our minds, if we're honest, we find ourselves questioning God's goodness and provision. We doubt. We can even lash out at God. Say things like, if, you, if, if God was truly good, why am I suffering like this? Well, the crisis can be worsened if we entertain many false teachings that there are in our day. Things like the prosperity gospel, as it is so called, which teaches us that our healing and our wealth and uh, the good things we get in our life is directly tied to how much faith that we, on our own initiative, have. Now, this sort of teaching is... Usually that faith is represented by how much money you're willing to give to the so-called preacher or the so-called ministry. As though God were a vending machine that gives us what we want if we just put the right amount of money in. It's a false teaching. It's one of the most prevalent and most dangerous false teachings of our day. But this same sort of error can attack us in more subtle ways. Perhaps even well-intended people can say things like, well, if you just pray more, trust God more, love people more, then God would make everything work out all right for you. 
Of course, if we buy into this, we find ourselves frustrated when we give and we pray and we trust and we love with greater vigor and things still don't get better. In fact, sometimes they still get worse. Our crisis of faith only deepens. If the crisis goes on long enough, despair and shame can creep in. We recognize that our faith is not adequate. It is not strong enough. We know our own unworthiness before God, but also our inability to do anything about the struggles of life. We start to wonder, can we even approach God with such weak faith? Well, tonight we look at this passage in Mark, and we see a man, we see a situation where one of these crises of faith has come to a head. We'll look at it in three parts. First, there is a conflicted crowd in verses 14 through 19. Jesus arrives in a bit of a sticky situation. And second, we see a father's faith in verses 20 through 24. A man has come to Jesus with a serious problem, believing that Jesus can do something about it, and yet also struggling to believe. And then third, we see the saved son in verses 25 through 29. Jesus displays for this man and for this crowd and for his disciples and all gathered there his power and his glory. First, we see the conflicted crowd in verses 14 through 19. So this text picks up at the moment where Jesus and his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, have come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. There Jesus has revealed himself to them in his full glory. He stood on the mountain with Moses and Elijah. The law and the prophets they represented, of which he was the fulfillment. And the Father confirmed that Jesus is his beloved Son. It's a mountaintop experience if there ever was one. Well, Jesus and these three disciples come down and meet the other nine disciples who seem to have a problem. There is a great crowd, these frantic fans of Jesus. We see throughout the Gospels, throughout Jesus' ministry, all the various crowds with various motives that come to follow Jesus, at least for a time. Some have truly been brought to faith through Jesus' gospel preaching. But others come because they have other motives. They want healing, for instance. We've talked about this as we've worked through John. Those who come for healing, those who come for food, those who come for other mixed motivations that may not actually be interested in Jesus' word and Jesus' teaching. Others may have just been following because they were interested in the spectacle. You've got Jesus. He's doing all these miracles. He's doing all these things we've never seen before. Things that no one else can do. It's, it's exciting. It's entertaining. What is he going to do next? Another set of characters we see here are the spiteful scribes. They were the Jewish religious leaders of the day. We've become rather familiar with them as we work through John. They're the ones that oppose and persecute, try to trap and trick Jesus every time they can. 
A lot of it is motivated by jealousy. A lot of it is motivated by wanting to keep their power and prestige and position and that being threatened by Jesus because Jesus teaches with authority that they don't have. He performs signs and wonders that they can't. He claims an authoritative interpretation of the Bible, of the Old Testament, of the law that disagrees with their writings and traditions. Jesus is a major threat to everything these guys are about. And so now they see a potential opportunity. They see Jesus' disciples having a difficulty and a struggle, and they've decided to try to capitalize on this situation to discredit Jesus and his ministry. And then finally, we have these defeated disciples. A man has brought his son who has suffered with an evil spirit, with a demon. This demon has been causing this boy to have debilitating seizures and to be mute. He's unable to speak. Now, because of the miraculous works of healing that Jesus had been doing throughout his ministry, this father had likely heard of Jesus and heard that Jesus could heal people, even in desperate and difficult situations, and so thought that perhaps Jesus could do something for his son. So this father has some measure of faith. He had made the effort to find Jesus, to bring his son to him. That wasn't easy. One would think it would count for something. Now also, there is a parallel passage to this in Matthew chapter 17. In verse 14 of that chapter, we see that when this man came to Jesus, he kneeled before him. This man had a certain reverence and respect for Jesus. But his timing was poor. At the time that he arrived, Jesus was not there. He had gone up on the mountain with the other three, leaving the nine remaining disciples, sort of the JV team of disciples. And they were having a difficulty. Though they had been able to this point to do works of healing, they were not able to cast this demon out. Now, there's two other texts in Mark, in chapter 3, verse 15, and chapter 6, verse 7, where the disciples were given the authority to cast out demons. So it wasn't like they were being presumptuous or arrogant and thinking they could. They had been told that they should have been able to. But something wasn't right this time. And the scribes, they were more than happy to swoop in and criticize and belittle them for their failure. Well, Jesus is not impressed with this scene he has come back to. He makes sure to let them know about it. He expresses his disappointment with the faithless generation. Now, who here is faithless in this text? There were some in the crowd who surely had true faith, but there are clearly others who do not. The scribes, for instance, certainly do not have faith. They're only there to nitpick and criticize and try to undermine Jesus' ministry. But there also is something of a lack of faith among Jesus' disciples at this point. Again, in that parallel passage in Matthew 17, Jesus... <coughs> There it says that Jesus' disciples had little faith, not even the faith of a mustard seed, which is quite small, and so they could not cast out the demon. 
Now as to this father who brought his son for healing, we'll address the state of his faith in our next point. After the conflicted crowd, we come to the father's faith in verses 20 through 24. Having rebuked the faithless, Jesus now turns to the boy and his father. When the boy is brought to Jesus, this demon within him causes one of these seizure episodes. Many times in Mark and other Gospels, we see Jesus confront demons, and the demons know who he is. They know he is the Son of God. They know that they are and will be defeated by him. And this, te- this demon also has an adverse reaction to the presence of the Son of God. Now Jesus asks his father about the boy's condition. The father says that this has been going on since the boy's childhood, likely for years. And it was not enough that this demon was causing the boy to seize or make him unable to speak. It was actively seeking to kill him. It threw him into fire and water. Now don't merely pass by that statement. Feel the weight of what this would mean for this father in his situation. Think of how scary that would be, how terrifying to have a child who was dealing with this sort of thing, being thrown into these dangerous situations by this demon. There would be the constant fear that his son's next episode might be the last. Who knows what damage there had already been being cast into the fire. It's very possible this son had been burned. He'd been scarred. He'd been thrown into water and nearly drowned. You could imagine this father's fear and his frustration. We could probably sense his desperation. He's made this journey to come to Jesus just hoping that he or somebody could do something. Then we also see his doubt. He says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. This is not a statement of confidence. Stands in contrast with another healing episode in Mark chapter 1 in verse 40. A leper came to Jesus and said, if you will, so basically if you want to, you can make me clean. The leper didn't doubt Jesus' ability to heal him, but his father seems to have doubt. Maybe he'd been burned before, I'm sure, with a son in this situation. He had probably tried everything that he could to try to see his son healed, and yet his son had not been healed. So this father shows doubt. If you can, then do something. Maybe this father's resigned to the fact that it's not going to get better. Maybe he thinks to himself, my son's never going to be well. This is just going to be another wasted trip on something that isn't going to work. And this condition's going to continue. Maybe my son's going to get tossed into the fire or the water one too many times, and that will be the end. Perhaps coming to Jesus is some last-ditch effort, but even then, there lingers the doubt, if you can. Now, Jesus, in this interaction with his father, he's not merely content to address the boy's condition. His response shows his interest in the father's heart. He gently confronts 
and corrects what this father had just said. If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. So the faithless generation that Jesus rebuked, it doesn't just include the crowd and the scribes and the disciples. Jesus is confronting this man's unbelief. Others, like the scribes, they're confronted with the reality of their unbelief and unworthiness before God, but they reject Jesus. They never come to a knowledge of the truth. They don't care. They are quite content with their unbelief. But this man receives Jesus' gentle rebuke and responds quite differently. He does not want to be numbered among the faithless generation. But think of all that he has gone through, living with this son, with this condition. He's tired. He's frustrated. And he doesn't know how to cure his lack of faith. And so he cries out in desperation, perhaps one of the most profound lines in all of Scripture, I believe, help my unbelief. How often have we stood in the place where this father has? We are so burdened and troubled by the things of this life, the trials, the difficulties. We want to believe. We want to trust in Christ with our whole hearts. We want to believe that his word and his promises to us are true. But we are weak. We are weary. We are plagued by doubts. We want to have faith, but it's just not there. Now note what does not happen here. His father does not look to himself for the strengthening of his faith. Some might be tempted to undertake some form of this. I mentioned back at the beginning the prosperity gospel and how its teachers tell people that they just need to work more faith in themselves and have more faith and then they'll have enough faith to be healed or whatever else they want. Some might prescribe some regiment of study, of self-control, of works to try to strengthen their faith. Now, study and discipline and these things are all good, but on their own, they will not strengthen our faith. No, what this man does, he cries out to God for more faith for better faith, for complete faith. This man comes to understand something we often miss. Our faith is not something that we do, not something that we can make, something we can muster up on our own. It is a gift from God, freely given to his people. We see this in passages like Ephesians 2.8. We read it this morning. Or the shorter catechism puts it this way in question 30. How doth the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? The Spirit applieth to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. So God, by His Holy Spirit, works faith in our hearts. Our faith is grounded in permanent and inseparable union with Christ. When our faith is failing, or at least in our subjective experience of it, it seems to be weak and inadequate. 
We should ask God to grant us more faith, to strengthen our faith. As this father cried out, we can cry out, we believe, help our unbelief. So, the father's struggle with his son's condition may have been the presenting problem at the start of this story, but Jesus has cut through it to the true need, the true problem, which was this father's crisis of faith. And he has brought the father to see his need to trust God to strengthen and perfect his faith. And then only after that does the healing come. So after the conflicted crowd and the father's faith, we come to our final point, the saved son, in verses 25 through 29. Now this scene is beginning to get rather intense. The crowd is gathering around. There is tension. Sure, Jesus has taught this man about faith, but what about the boy? What about this healing that as of yet has not been seen and All the scribes are standing around and whispering among themselves and pointing and laughing. It cannot be done and hasn't been done so far. Well, where his disciples were unable, Jesus being the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord of heaven and earth, is able. He rebukes the unclean spirit. He calls the spirit deaf and mute. The spirit is deaf, it is unable to hear the disciples commanding it to depart, but it cannot ignore the voice of the Lord. But unlike other episodes where Jesus casts out demons and merely tells them to leave, he takes this one step further. He says, come out of him and enter him no more. The demon that the disciples couldn't even touch Jesus banished permanently. He provided total and undeniable healing for the boy. Now the demon doesn't leave without a fight. text tells us that it convulsed violently. And so violent and loud was the demon's departure that afterwards the crowd thought that the boy had in fact died. Now again, this would be scary. Imagine you're watching this, especially imagine if you're the father for a brief split second, you might be gripped with the terror that you came to Jesus. You came to Jesus in faith. You thought he was providing you more faith only for your son to die in his hands. Perhaps even the scribes who were so frequently looking to tear down and discredit Jesus saw an opportunity they could seize on. Look at this guy. Look at what his faith in Jesus got him, his son, is dead. But Jesus wasn't done. In verse 27, he took the boy's hand and lifted him up. He gives him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Christ had displayed his glory first in strengthening the father's faith, then by healing his son and banishing the demon. Of course, there still remained one issue, the previously humiliated disciples. After this demon was cast out, in verse 28, the disciples asked Jesus why they couldn't do it. Well, Jesus tells them what this type of demon could only be cast out by prayer. What does he mean there? 
Well, some have taken this text, this verse, to speculate that there are certain classes of demons, some more powerful than others. People in our day, after all, love to speculate into the secret things, the realm of myths, and just guessing things and making things up about angels and demons that the Bible doesn't tell us. Is that really Jesus' point here? I would say no. The problem is not that the demon was too big. The problem was that the faith of the disciples was too small. Remember from the parallel in Matthew I mentioned earlier that Jesus had specifically criticized the disciples for their lack of faith. They had tried to confront this demon on their own power. They had been doing some signs and wonders while Jesus was away on the mountain, and maybe they got a little too self-confident. They thought they had it made. Maybe they even thought it was their own greatness and power by which they were doing these mighty acts. After all, many other times you see the disciples fighting among themselves over which of them was the greatest. They're often tempted and led away by seeking their own things and their own glory. But that, sorry, but Jesus' answer to the disciples' lack of faith is their need for prayer. Is prayer an act of extolling one's own greatness and relying on one's own strength? Of course not. Prayer is the act where we recognize our own inadequacy, our own need, our own weakness, our own sin, and come before God for his help. Prayer, or at least a form of prayer, is what we see in verse 24 with what that father said, I believe, help my unbelief. So what Jesus is confronting here is the disciples' self-sufficiency. They're leaning on their own strength and understanding. They're forgetting the one who called them and saved them, gave them whatever power and strength they have. They tried to go it alone. They didn't rely on him. What the father of the boy cried out, the disciples, though they were more reluctant to admit it, they also needed to be saying before their Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Their unbelief took not the form of fear and doubt and despair like the Father had. It took the form of, we don't have faith, we don't believe, because we don't need to. We can make it on our own. And how often are we inclined to do the same? We think we can solve all our own problems. We think we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and overcome whatever, whatever obstacles are thrown at us. Well, this passage in Mark reminds us of how foolish such thinking is. Our fallen desire is to take credit for our own accomplishments and to trust in ourselves rather than to praise God and to trust God who gave us the very life we have, the very breath in our lungs. We can claim to be Christians, we can claim to depend on God, but we can often live like he is not there. And only turn, we often will only turn to God when we have run out of other options. Our faith is weak, though we often don't realize it until we're in trouble. 
But as we've already discussed, we can't strengthen our own faith. We are so very weak. We are so very inadequate. The trials of life, whether they be the suffering of a child like this father faced or something else, they all scream out to us that we are not enough, that this world is fallen, that we are broken, that sin is in us and in everything else and has stained everything in this world. This passage makes it explicitly clear that it is not us, but Jesus who has all power. But he is not distant from us. He is not inaccessible to us. We just talked this morning about God's eminence, how God draws near to us and condescends to us. Well, God's eminence is most clearly and powerfully on display in the God-man. God the Son who dwelt among us. He took on humanity. He lived the perfect life we could not and went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He has purchased us with his blood and has all power and authority over us. And because Jesus has all power, we can trust him and we can ask him to strengthen our faith. We can ask him to help our unbelief. Our Savior is not merely the object of our faith, He is the source of it. And we can come to Him with our sins, come to Him with our failures, even come to Him with our unbelief and find grace. Perhaps you come here tonight unsure if the free gift of salvation in Christ is yours or can be yours. The call of the gospel is to repent of your sins and believe in him. Believe that he is the son of God, the savior of the world. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is working this faith in your heart tonight for the first time. Perhaps you come tonight like the disciples. You've been trying to do things on your own power, not dependent on God. You will not get far without him. You will fail as those disciples failed. Perhaps you come tonight as the father in this story. You have faith, but it has been shaken. It has been weakened. It has been challenged. You're facing great trials and heartbreak and sorrow. You don't know if your faith is enough. You don't know if your faith is even going to survive. Just as this father said to Jesus, you too can confess along with him. I believe, help my unbelief. Trust in Christ to strengthen your faith. Rest in Christ knowing that he cares for you, that he is enough for you, whatever this world may throw at you. Let Christ be your all in all. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who is not only the object of our faith, but the source of our faith. We thank you that by your Holy Spirit you have chosen a people and worked faith in them so that they might believe in Christ and that through Him they might know you. I pray that you would strengthen our faith, encourage our faith, whatever trials and difficulties of life we face, that we would depend not on ourselves, but that we would trust wholly in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.